Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we have part two of our tribute to singer, songwriter, and producer Adam Schlesinger. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. Today we have part two of our tribute to Adam Schlesinger, singer, songwriter, producer, and as we learned in episode one, all around wonderful human being. Also joining us on this episode is, of course, executive producer John Hughes. John, how are you? I'm good, Rich. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. We had so many people that wanted to talk about their relationships with Adam that, of course, we couldn't fit it into one episode. And episode one was, I think, the longest Rhino podcast that we've had to date, actually. And the most well-received, which is really gratifying to see. We have quite a few people lined up to talk about Adam and their relationships with him today. And we're going to start with Dominique Durand and Andy Chase from Ivy. What can you tell us about these folks, John? I I loved Ivy. Uh, In fact, it was kind of interesting when Adam and I would talk, I would always bring the conversation back to Ivy. And he wasn't surprised, but he was more fascinated, which is a pun, an Ivy song fascinated, uh, that I focused on (laughs) Ivy so much when he was so used to people wanting to talk about Fountains of Wayne, Fountains of Wayne, or Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And I was really pleased to talk to Andy and Dominique, and I was just ecstatic that they were just such nice, warm people. And again, it's just a testament to Adam being that that social hub. He he picks great people to surround himself with, and these two are no exception. had a recording studio before Stratosphere Sound. Stratosphere Sound was the studio that uh, I owned with Adam and James Eha mm-hmm. from, from the Pumpkins. Uh, bef- before Stratosphere Sound, I'd owned a recording studio called The Place. That's where Adam did a lot of his early work. But we were friends even before that. We, I met him not that long after I met Dominique. I met Dominique in 1990. 
and I think around 1992, maybe, um, I put an ad in the Village Voice uh, looking to start a band. I, I just learned how to play guitar. Mm. And I put some pretty obscure references, Prefab Sprout, The Go-Betweens. You know, a lot of people called and they were like, yeah, I, I play all styles. They didn't know that music. He was one of the few people that, you know, who's asking my favorite song by The Go-Betweens. And so when he came over, I think he came with Chris, right? No, he came with He him. came by himself. So Adam came and of course, this was my big business meeting. You know, we were in our early 20s. So right. Dominique and I, were, we weren't married yet, but we were living together. So I made my girlfriend, it was a one bedroom apartment. So my office meeting was, took place in the uh, living room and she hid in the bedroom, but she was like listening the whole time through the door. And, you know, Adam introduced himself and ironically, he, the reason that he and I, he didn't end up starting a band with me from that ad was because he said he was kind of there under uh, false pretenses. He was looking to find a guitar player for his band, Hmm. uh, a guy named Chris from college. Um, and they were called Pinwheel. Pinwheel was, you know, Chris and Adam, and they ultimately changed the name to Fountains of Wayne. But that was, they were, they had just started Pinwheel, and I, so that's how I met. Um, so we parted ways, realizing that it wasn't, um, I wasn't going to be their guitar, guitar player, and he already had a lead singer, Chris Collingwood. So when he left, Dominique came out of the bedroom, she's like, that guy's really cool, you, you know, you should try to keep in touch with him. So, so I did, and I used the, the pretext of, my recording studio called The Place to call him up and hang out. Um, I had done some demos with Dominique uh, just for fun to, for her to sing on because she had never sung. And I called him up and said, I need a bass player. You know, I play the drums and the guitar, but I, you know, I don't play bass. So he came to my studio. That was the first time he came. And he's like, wow, I should work here sometimes because I'm getting more and more jobs. And he put bass down in these songs and that's how Ivy started. You mentioned, uh, Dominique, you kind of poked your head out the door and said, hey, this guy's cool. What was your overall first impression of Adam as a person? Well, you know, Andy had told me, you just listen to our, because he was interviewing quite a lot of musicians. So Andy trusted my opinion and he said, just hide and uh, just listen to our conversation and then you tell me what you think. So, and so I never actually saw him, but I just listened to the conversation and I thought, well, he's very smart, he's very articulate, he's very worldly, he has a great knowledge of uh, music, and he's smart, just he's smart. I mean, there's so many musicians that are talented, but they're not that smart. <laughs> so it was refreshing to see someone like him who was um, not only sounded like an amazing musician, but also a great guy, funny and witty and, and uh, very like cultured, and so I was very impressed. So that's why I told Andy, look, even if the music doesn't work out between the two of you, you should you should be friends with that guy because he's he's really interesting and and uh, and there's not that many people like him. And I and felt that there was good chemistry. You know, you just know when you meet somebody and you're kind of destined to be friends. It wasn't ironic that we ended up starting a band together. It was young people meeting and sort of finding their way in New York and figuring out who their friends are supposed to be. And actually, Adam is sort of responsible for Ivy, in a way, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, because even though Andy and I started together just as a joke, uh, we never took it seriously. It was just like having fun, like late at night in the studio recording, and 
And when Adam heard our stupid songs, he was really excited. He was, this is great. I really love the vibe. This is fantastic. Let's, I want to be part of this project. Let's do more. So that's, that's how it happened. Really, it was Adam's kind of enthusiasm, mm -hmm. like his willingness to do something with that little project. We didn't like the detraction and the distraction that would come from people identifying whose songs were whose. So if you notice on any Ivy release ever, without exception, it's just the song writing is credited to the three of us. But partly it's, it's because we all had such a heavy hand in the writing of each other's material. Just out of curiosity, I mean, this was maybe, you know, we have eight or nine albums, so maybe at album five, I just decided to take inventory just because I had to sort of satiate my curiosity. And, and it, it was really a 30, 30, 30, you know, it was like a third, hmm. a third line, a third his and a third that were really like true collaborations, yeah. not like he wrote a verse, like we sat down to physically in the same room, had to qualify for for that other thirty three percent. So was it always yeah. that? Or did it kind of go that direction as you guys? Once Adam play, came to my studio and played bass, mm -hmm. and got really excited about my wife who had never sung before, and I like I got over the shock of him that he was actually serious, and then I got over that shock. You know, we started hanging out more, and he said, "Well, let's let's put together a demo." And, you know, the three songs I played on, let's do two more. So the first few that we did, we, you know, because we were polite and we were sort of, we were young and inexperienced and, and also, you know, polite to each other. So those early songs, I guess, they were, you know, like Get Enough. Get Enough, Adam and I wrote together on the couch with acoustic guitars. Yeah. Still remember that. One thing that struck me uh, about Adam was his loyalty to people he was with. And even during that thing you do and, and Stacy's mom, he, he always came back to Ivy. Uh, can you guys talk yeah. about that a little bit? First of all, I totally agree with that because um, Adam was, it's so strange to say was, but yeah, uh, he was very loyal. But he always needed to be involved in many, many projects because he's just, you know, that was him, like almost like he was an overachiever. He needed to be involved in many things because I think he was bored very quickly. And in a way, you know, Adam was quite ambitious, like he wanted success, definitely. And he was aiming for commercial success. Ivy was never about that. And especially for me, I was always sort of not against it, but I just, you know, I just wanted to do cool stuff and, and just be happy with it. And I didn't. You know, I was not that ambitious. <laughs> but your sensibilities and mine. Yeah, yeah. But we didn't like, but not by choice. It's just the stuff we liked just wasn't that commercial. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it. And, uh, but you respected that. You totally understood. And I think Ivy was in, in, in is an artistic outlet that was more expressing, yeah, expressing his more sensitive side and more dreamy and atmospheric and romantic side of, of Adam. And, uh, and I think he needed that creatively to be able to have that. And he understood that, okay, Ivy will never be big on radio or anything like that, but he didn't mind because he could have that with other projects that he had. So he was, yeah, he was very, um, even though he loved success and commercial success, he also loved this project with Ivy, for sure. He needed both. You know, it's like an older guy and his mistress and his wife. <laughs> you got your wife, your mistress. <laughs> <laughs> you got, well, you're happy. You got whether the mistress or the wife like, is I, think, wife? I think we ended up being the mistress we started uh, as the wife okay. we used to say that uh, we were the band that all you had to do was come into close contact with us whether play a show, open up for us have us open for you you would become successful more successful than us 
It's just like oh, yeah, the amount, it's, right? Yeah, we yeah. just kept saying we were like a rabbit's foot for people because, you know, even myself included, like I've been trying to get a record deal for a few years and Adam too with Pinwheel, Chris. And as soon as Ivy happened, you know, a couple of years later, Adam had, we had a publishing deal. So Adam had a relationship with a publishing company at that point. He had a relationship with Atlantic because we were signed to Atlantic Records, Ivy was. So all of a sudden Pinwheel got signed. And all of a sudden I started getting work in Japan as a producer and that thing you do. And we started touring more as Ivy and every, like every band we, we opened up for smash mouth before they were well-known. Oh, wow. Uh, it was like right around the, it's like within six months of Oasis, Oasis, <laughs> New York, first in New York. <laughs> Oasis, smash mouth on and on and on. And when I say these names, especially smash mouth and bands like that, before they really broke, so at some point we look back and we're like, Jesus Christ, everybody that, you know, everybody takes off. Well, I think he, he understood that early on, uh, Adam, like he knew that we were not going to be a radio band. We were not going to be like performing in, you know, in stadium, but he, he could see that there was, um, you know, something unique in our sound that was very, uh, that was sort of perfect for music soundtrack or TV, TV soundtrack or things like that. And he was right because that's where we had the most success with. It's interesting because the success with the, the sinks informed him and me, but I'm talking for us, especially with him. I, I remember at that time we had so many licenses, especially back in the days when it wasn't that you know, typical for bands, unless you were like Michael Jackson. Um, and that was off our album, Apartment Life. And the next album after that, which you know, I, I think everyone would agree is like much more, dreamy and and uh you know soundscapey that was after all those sinks and so I, I think in a way the success from apartment life on 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 tv shows and and movies informed adam's aesthetic even more and made clear what to go for for the next record not writing something for a movie but to have that you know that back in that, that time i would say that the aesthetic what, what would be informed is more of a sense of space and atmosphere and moodiness and so i think that success we had really did inspire and inform adam's future songs for ivy it really was a a snowball effect that began at the top of the mountain with with our publishing company which was uh polygram Mm -hmm. and uh and holly green who had signed us there and and the first of what was to be many was a license for volkswagen commercial for commercial. commercial and you know a record deal with seed records it was a subsidiary of atlantic our record deal was our advance was fifteen thousand dollars fifteen thousand right our lawyer <laughs> our lawyer's fee to to negotiate the deal and come up you know write the contract was was like eleven thousand huh. <laughs> like and so that's sort of where we were coming from financially. And then we got a call from Holly Green at Polygram. And she said, we have an, a license opportunity. They want to take a song off your record. So we don't have to write anything for anyone. They just want to know if it's okay to use. And they'll pay you $40,000. Uh, okay. And I, yeah. Plus that's, you know, we heard that Volkswagen was pushing this new like convertible and the commercials were going to be cool. And 
didn't matter, but it, it helped that it was it wasn't a tampon commercial. Yeah. And do you remember how many people came? Because this is this is really this kind is of predating. This is our first records. So this is uh, this is like 94, 90, 95. And there was no indie bands back then doing commercial because that was so uncool. And you know the credibility back then was really important, right? Because it's how you you know you created your your sound and your fan base. So at first we were like, well, I don't know, because if we accept this commercial, we might just lose all of the fan base and, you know, we're not going to be like a credible band. And Adam and Andy being more like, yeah, well, you know, fuck them, let's just do it. <laughs> and uh, then we realized that Luna, some bands were kind of like us. Dean Worm. Dean Worm and Luna and, and like two other bands were sort of like that also took that opportunity and agreed to do the commercial. So then we're like, oh, okay, so let's do it. But then... We had fans coming to yeah. the show because there was no email. <laughs> so we had fans coming to the show. Just, just the, I remember after the show, like two, two girls waiting for us to get in our van and they telling us what assholes we are and they'll never see us again. And I was like, well, you, you came tonight. I just came to tell you, you guys suck. And I think, you know, you sold out and like, really, it was, uh, but that, that money carried us for so long. And that opportunity with Volkswagen led to so many other licenses, which then informed our next album. It just, Adam always had great instincts for music on a, on a, um, on a feel level, mm -hmm. as well as great instinct for what was, what would work. You know, like he had a good business sense, right? So that business sense would kick in even maybe unconsciously with some of his music decisions, not, not in terms of writing, but looking at our songs when they were finished and coming up with ideas for like, I think this song would be really good for, you know, you know what? I know somebody knows that director and let's see if we can get the, he was, he always, his wheels were always spinning, but he could really turn that off, which was amazing. You know, when you say you meet somebody like when Adam and I met, it was the go-betweens, prefab sprout and uh, Smith, whatever, Smiths, like a lot of British right? bands. So what people didn't realize because of Fountains of Wayne is that, where Adam really came from was music that was closer to Ivy mm -hmm. and less the Fountains of Wayne. I think one of his favorite songs was Appetite by Pete. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he, you know, Adam was so smart and so articulate. He really admired the, the marriage of smart, brainy lyrics in music that was accessible, which I guess is really Fountains of Wayne in a way. Um, but, you know, talking about Prefab Sprout and Go-Betweens, they really fit that bill. And so, yeah, most of the bands that Adam liked, they were much more left, leaning left mm -hmm. than people would realize. There's so many. I mean, it's, there's so many. It's so hard to, like, remember one. But he always had, like, these crazy stories, like, even on tour, especially, like, with Ivy, because... Adam actually really paid his due with Ivy because we, at the, you know, the first two records, we were touring so much and uh, in a horrible condition, you know, like in a van, um, tiny van with like eight people in it and driving like all day. It was horrible. But, and I think this is the time, right? Remember? Well, when you say horrible, you, have, you know, in, in a van like she described, but we're talking about going 14,000 miles before we come home. Yeah, you know, six, seven, eight weeks, and and like right. staying in like this crappy motel. And Adam and I doing all, and, and he and I were doing all the driving. Yeah, but uh, so I think during the day it was just we were so bored, and and Adam was like the best entertainer because he would crack jokes all the time and just coming up with the most 
crazy little stories that even his childhood, his parents, remember the rabbit with his dad? Just, yeah. just, just very animated, you know, like he was kind of an actor, like always. He had a great, great delivery. I mean, his, he was incredibly funny, as everybody knows, but not everybody funny is funny uh, with a mind that's so, fa like quips, okay? He, mm -hmm. he was the best with quips. I remember a good example of, of how funny and fast his mind is. We, the three of us were having, the three, me, you, and Adam, we were having drinks with Divine Comedy. What was that guy's name? Neil Hannon from Divine Comedy. And a British guy. And he, we were just getting to know each other. He was in New York for a while. And so we were having drinks and Neil was describing his background. And he said, well, I grew up in a very religious family. Uh, my father's actually a bishop, seriously. And Adam's like, so he moves diagonally? Everyone knows Adam as this very hardworking and really funny and witty guy. And he's all of that, obviously. But there's also, I keep going back to this more sensitive side of him and kind of fragile that it's much rare to see because he doesn't really show it and he doesn't like to show it. But so there's a song, um, we'll never do that again. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's a ballad, very simple lyrics, but Adam wrote it. And, uh, and in a way, it's very, much, uh, it's very much the Adam that I knew too, which is uh, kind of melancholic a little bit and dreamy, but not really dwelling on that. But still, it's still a reality for him. And uh, so to me, that's a song that really represents mm -hmm. Adam and Edge of the Ocean, obviously, too, which is a highly, to me, a very romantic song that's also uh, but edge of the ocean it's it is an adam song but it's not that doesn't show a side in the way maybe um like uh, uh there's a song called baker oh, yeah, um, and it was it was our tipping in the hat to chet baker and i still remember adam then we had like dictaphones with micro cassette tapes and when we get together we would play each other our, our ideas for for the upcoming ivy album and so he's he pushes play and he's it was this acoustic guitar part that he was playing. It's the guitar part in, in Baker. And there's a great trumpet horn line in Baker, but Adam had conceived that part. So he's, he's playing this song and he's kind of, uh, I'm, I'm listening to the recording and he's singing the melody sort of, but even with his little squeaky voice, it still was really evocative. And then he gets to the trumpet part. And that's when I called him a chicken because he, he did the trumpet part like, I still I would love to find that cassette tape because that was for until we, he's like, no, no, it's going to be trumpet. I was like, I don't know. I think you should record it just like on your cassette tape, just do like a half chicken half. Um, but that cassette, that little micro cassette recording was so evocative and, you know, it, it, it became the, the backbone that we built Baker around. And I just, you know, I love that song because it's, it, specifically when I think about Adam, because it's so vastly different than what most people, most people don't even know Ivy exists. They know Fountains of Wayne. And so they'd be so surprised to hear that Adam wrote a song like Baker and loved that song, you know, and that that was very much part of the Adam that Dominique and I knew.
Adam did a lot of work for television, creating music for TV and film. And he created the music for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. You sat down with Rachel Bloom, who was the co-creator and star of that TV show. Yeah, and of course, you know, Adam was the executive music supervisor for the show, but he worked alongside Rachel and and Jack and Stephen Gold on this. It wasn't a solo effort. It was truly collaborative. And he brought a lot more to the show in terms of wit and just inserting jokes here and there, as you'll hear during this conversation with the amazing Rachel Bloom. I was working hard at a New York job, making dough, but it made me blue. I was crying a lot, and so I decided to move to West Covina, California. Brand new pals and new career. It happens to be where Josh lives, but that's not why I'm here. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. What? No, I'm not. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. That's a sexist term. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. Can you guys stop singing for just a second? She's so broken inside. The situation's a lot more nuanced than that. C-R-A-Z-Y. Okay, we get it. Crazy ex-girlfriend. I met Adam in 2014 when we thought we were going to go for a series at Showtime. We had uh, an interview. I, I, I met him through Aline because, you know, Aline mm. knew, knew Adam through her husband because they were roommates 25 years ago. And so I met Adam and then the show we thought wasn't going to series. So Adam assumed we'd never see, you know, we'd never see him again. He came on to be the official music producer and, and song co-writer when we got ordered to series, which was later that year, right. 2015, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you and Jack were doing everything by yourself. So to have this new person come in could have been awkward, but it wasn't, was it? No. Um, so first of all, well, there's a couple things at play. Jack is a great music producer, but prefers to outsource the producing to other people. And then when it, so when it comes to outsourcing, producing to other people, there is nobody better than than Adam and, and his partners and Stephen Gold. And then, but from a writing standpoint, yeah, you can never predict, especially comedy writing. Comedy songwriting is really hard to nail. And then to find a good chemistry is even harder. And so the fact that Adam just seamlessly started writing with us, and it was always different combinations. Sometimes it would be Jack and Adam. Sometimes it would be me and Adam. Sometimes it would be me and Jack. And then, but when the three of us were together, that was, that was our favorite part. And it just instantly clicked. We instantly creatively got each other. Writing comedy music is hard enough to do, but also he was a master just songwriter who could write in any genre. And so you're, you're getting someone who not only can write funny shit, which very few people can do, but you're also getting someone who separately is, is this master of his craft. The thing that really sticks in my mind is the past couple years, I really got to know Adam on a different level because we were doing our live shows mm-hmm. and we were doing Crazy X Live. I mean, we're coming up upon the year of when we did Radio City Music Hall. Our last episode of Crazy X was this concert that we filmed at the Orpheum. And then we went and performed at the London Palladium right after Radio City last June. And that's... That felt incredibly special. The second I started performing live with Adam, it really took our our friendship to a new level because we just had so much fun performing together and being loose together on stage and riffing together. And sometimes an audience member would shout out a song and I'd be like, Adam, let's do that song. And he'd be like, oh, fuck, I don't even have the sheet music with me. What the fuck? And, and he would just kind of wing it. 
And the thing is, looking back on all these shows that we were just doing fairly recently, at any point, he could have been like, why am I playing piano for you to sing most of the time? I'm Adam fucking Schlesinger. I'm EGOT nominated. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a big deal. But in, it was always the opposite. He just loved playing. He loved being in a collaboration. And in fact, when we performed live, I always wanted him and insisted that he sing What'll It Be? And he was always like, okay, if you want me to. There was no ego about him performing. It was always about you know what he thought and we thought was best for the show. And he just could have had so much more of an ego. Uh, he could have had the don't you know who I am-itis. And he didn't have that. And in fact, I'd introduce him on stage. I'd introduce him on stage and, and at parties. I'd be like, this is Adam Schlesinger. He's EGOT nominated. Like, I'd give all his credits. And he'd go, oh, my publicist, Rachel Bloom. Like, I was always bragging about him. He felt simultaneously like a big brother. I'm an only child. so. But he felt like a, a big brother. And then, but at parties, it, he would transform sometimes into a little brother because he was actually quite introverted. Mm-hmm. He's an introverted extrovert. Yeah. I mean, which is, you know, every horoscope mm-hmm. says that you're an introvert, yeah. but it, but it really is true. Like we would be at these parties and he's a big fucking deal. Like he could, he could walk around and be like, yeah, I'm a big fancy songwriter, but he would, he never wanted to brag about himself that way. So I would kind of like be at parties and like grab his hand and trot him around and be like, this is Adam. <laughs> He's such a big deal. You're so lucky to be meeting him right now. And he'd be like, oh, okay. It's really cool because as we started to get to do live performances, I got to know more of his musician friends. Mm -hmm. And just seeing the amount of respect that they had for him and that they all had for each other was like really cool. I mean, the last time I saw him was at this burger place in LA called Burgers Never Say Die that he was obsessed with. And whenever he'd come out, uh, with his daughters, he would eat at Burgers Never Say Die like multiple times a week. So he knew that I was trying to get pregnant, and he was so excited because you know he loved loved his daughters as any father does. But he was really really psyched for it. And we were working on the nanny together the day that I ovulated because I was like, I feel weird. He's like, Oh my god, you're already pregnant. And I was like, No. But then I texted him later. I was like, I'm ovulating. And so I I kept him really posted on like my different my cycle when I was trying to get pregnant and then when I when I was pregnant and actually the last the last conversation he Jack and I had over text was Jack and Adam wrote this song called The Miracle of Birth for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and it's a you know a song about the realities of childbirth and I the day I found out I was pregnant I was humming that song like Adam's you know Adam's melodies they just get stuck in your head and Miracle of Birth is no exception and it was kind of stuck in my head for the entire nine months I was pregnant. And the first lyric in the miracle of birth is where, well, your cervix has been closed and plugged with mucus, but soon that viscous plug will be discharged. And so the day my mucus plug came out, I texted Jack and Adam. I was like, guys, we're tracking the song exactly so far. And the last text Adam sent was, uh, it's mucus to my ears. (laughs) He is brilliant. I he was mean, great. I mean, the la- that's the last text that it's a pun. Yeah. Of course, the last text between the three of us is a pun. And, and I think the last time the three of us were together was the Emmys. That night was so special. But, you know, everything now, the experience of working with Adam and, and then of all of Crazy X has this new lens over it. Everything, every 
every memory, every picture in my phone, every video now has this sadness and this feeling of like, I wish I could go back to that time before. And I think that that's how we're all feeling with the world in general, but there's that longing for the beforeness. And I was thinking about it. We, you know, we wrote 157 songs for crazy X. And in that last season, it was getting so hard. I mean, just especially because we had 18 episodes that last season, we thought we were only going to have 13. And I remember Jack and I were writing at one point and Jack was like, what if we just had no more songs? No one made us do this. We don't have to have songs anymore. And I just would think about how tired we'd all be when we wrote songs. Cause none of our main jobs was songwriting on the show. I mean, I was acting on the show. Adam was producing the, the, the music. Uh, Jack was in the writer's room and directing. And so writing was kind of this weird second job that the three of us had now with him being gone. Like I, I truly would give like anything to write like one more song with, mm-hmm. with Adam and with Jack. And yeah, I, I mean, I'm still coming to terms with the loss of like him as a collaborator. I mean, Jack, Adam and I had a, we had a movie deal with uh, DreamWorks and it was uh, for this movie called Sea Dweebs about uh, uh, basically sea monsters, but they were like uh, kind of rednecks. <laughs> and we airbeat and bead this beautiful house right outside of Austin to just jam on this movie. This is a couple years ago. And then every day we ate barbecue oh, yeah. Adam, and Adam had like a really extensive knowledge of like mm-hmm. the best barbecue. And so every night we got drunk and ate barbecue. And then every day we worked on seed weaves and it was, it was so fun. It was, it was really fun. Getting by is that was from a, I mean, that wasn't even a brainstorming session I was involved in. That was Aline and the writers had talked to a representative from GLAAD about, okay, we want to do a song destigmatizing bisexuality. And Adam took these almost like talking points and then made this brilliant Huey Lewis song out of that. I mean, every time you got a new Adam demo, it was astonishing. When I heard Let's Generalize About Men for the first time, that was a joke brainstorming session that Adam, Jack, and I did. And then he turns around, generalize about men. And I remember I was backstage at the upfronts that year and I played it for Donna Lynn. I had, I had to play it for everyone I knew. And I thought this song was going to get us the Emmy. So then we were surprised when we weren't even nominated. Uh, that song's amazing. Um, when we were writing um, uh, the end of the movie, this song, the hook line is life doesn't make narrative sense. We are trying to come up with what the hook should be. And I was like, really what the song should be is like, life is a, gradual series of revelations that just occur over at a period of time. And he's like, that's it. That, that should, that's, that's repeat that. Let's make that like the hook. And he just had um, an instinct for things in an ear. And I would, I would try to pick his brain and be like, walk me through your music theory experience. How much of this are you, how much of this are you bringing to the table with your, your classical background and how much of this is intuitive. And he would all, he was he would kind of brush it off, be like, I don't know, I'm just feeling it out. But he clearly, he had such an extensive understanding of how music and music worked. He never like music theory explained me though. And then I think about like the random jokes he had that made me laugh. We, we wrote this song slow motion in the last season. And it's about basically the girl's, Rebecca and her friends all get a makeover and they're walking in slow motion and they, but they're wearing these almost kind of um, chic, like eighties looking fluorescent suits. And there was a lyric, we had to think about what they would have looked like walking through this casino. And it was like, maybe they think we're in a sexy cult. And then Adam threw out or flight attendants at five different airlines, which is just such a perfect specific. 
Adam Jack and I were always trying to make each other laugh, but we, he would bust out these like amazing specifics. Oh, I mean, Adam was my date to the Tony Awards the year Neil Patrick Harris shaded me online. Adam was with me for that whole night and that whole experience. And he was at one point, he's like, I have Neil Patrick Harris's number. Do you want me to just text? (laughs) God, I mean, Mm. I have so many like fucking stories. I loved performing at Sid Gold's. I loved performing at Sid Gold's with him. That was so fun. He has, I was, I have this like pregnancy book and it says, well, what do you, what do you call the, the baby inside you? And one of the first nicknames for her was Ringo because shortly before I got pregnant, Adam Jack and I had gone to see Paul McCartney at Dodger stadium. And so that was right when I got pregnant. And so the joke was that Paul McCartney was the true father of my child and that we were going to name the child Ringo. And so like, that is the first name for the baby that I have in this book. He was just kind of as, as unimpressed as he was with like his own credits, not in a bad way, but he just wasn't up. He wasn't up his own ass, always like stating his credits. He also similarly wasn't impressed in a phony way by status or fame. Cause he obviously knew so many famous people and had met so many famous people and was famous in his own right but there was never this feeling of him respecting hierarchy and status based on anything less than merit or or ability and he wanted respect he gave respect and wanted respect i think that was the thing that he valued the most and i he was just so not precious i mean i loved when we wrote the song the moment is me which is making fun of everything Jack, Adam, and I hate about the worst parts of musical theater. Adam was a connoisseur of music, but also was so great at shitting on music he hated. (laughs) Like, that's what I'm, that's what I love and I miss is his ability to isolate why a thing was saccharine or schmaltzy or easy or terrible and just like very quietly take it down. I really, really love that. I, he and I were working on the nanny musical. I was banking songs for him to do demos of mm-hmm. right before he got sick. And I have his first demo in my email. People can't do what he did. I mentioned this to you off mic, but the day my daughter was born is the day I found out Adam was in the hospital. And my daughter was in the NICU because she had fluid in her lungs. It's actually a very common condition, but still it's, it's horrifying to have a, a newborn in the NICU, especially during a pandemic when you're trying to get the fuck out of the hospital. Mm. And she got put on a ventilator And then I got the email that he was on a ventilator and it just, they felt like weirdly tethered. She, when she got out of the hospital, we got an update that he was getting better. And so everything felt like it was on this upswing. And I, I was talking to Jack and Aline and it just, it felt so within reach that we would be able to talk to Adam about this and that he'd rag on himself for having COVID. I texted him last night. Mm. I was, I texted him and I was like, Hey man, I just wanted to like text you one more time. It, it, Cause he, he comments on the world. He's so smart, you know, and, and comments on the world. And he's the guy who kind of sits back and observes everything, which is why he's such a great, not only songwriter, but, but parody or pastiche songwriter, because he knows exactly how to absorb a genre and, and, and tribute it and then, and then mock it. And so you don't picture the, the people who kind of, sit back and observing the world being part of a world event like this. You just yeah. don't, it's like, he's too smart. He's too, he's too smart and snarky. 
for this to get him is, is what it felt like. And obviously that's not logical. That's not how illness or death works, but it's just like him ragging on himself was so within reach. I just, I was like any day now I'm going to, we're going to call, we're going to call him and he's going to be like, Oh man, that was intense. Oh boy. And then like, you won't want to talk about it. He'll be like, let's move on. It's fine. Hey, West Covina. Why won't you let me break free? Am I doomed to stay here? Pouring my high school friends beers for the rest of eternity. Covina, you know just where to find me. I'll never go far, so pull up to the bar. Hey, West Covina, what'll it be? One of our favorite people at Rhino is, of course, Mickey Dolans. He's always so much fun to work with. And Adam, of course, produced two of the more recent and extremely well-received Monkeys Records, Good Times and Christmas Party. John, you've worked with Mickey extensively, and it's interesting the relationship that he also had with Adam. Yeah, we found out right from the jump when we brought Adam in to produce this record, Good Times, in 2016. We actually started work in 2015, and it started with just a, hey, let's get to know you meeting at Rhino with Adam and and Mickey. And boy, they clicked immediately. It, It went beyond a professional working relationship, as often it did with Adam. When he really connected with someone, he made sure to really make them feel like a close friend. And Mickey was really blown away when he heard the news of Adam's passing. And and like all of us, he just is still having a hard time processing it, as you'll hear. There's a good time coming on. Try to think back when we had those first meetings at Rhino. What was your first impression of Adam? Well, I immediately liked him, but that was because I knew who he was, and I was a big fan of that thing you do. And I knew about him. I knew about um, the group. I knew, because I hate to drop names, but I bumped into Tom Hanks and Rita, who I had known Rita, I'd known for a, a while. But I bumped into them at a party, and when I was introduced to Tom by Rita, he said, I made a movie about you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I remember when the movie came out, some people would come up to me before I'd seen it. And I don't listen to the radio that much. And they said, have you heard that song from that thing you do? I said, no. And they said, listen to it. So I found it somewhere because they said, is that you singing? <laughs> is that you guys? And I said, no, no, no. <laughs> but it's a great song, which it was, of course. So I knew of, of Adam. So when I met him, I, I probably the first thing I said was, God, I love that song you, you, you did for the movie. And, um, and I, I know Tom, well, I, I met him. So, you know, I just immediately bought into him and his sensibilities being absolutely spot on for this, for this project. When I met Adam, first of all, I liked him. He had a great sense of humor, very very similar to my own. So we got along great. 
on that level. I already knew that he was a great writer producer that that went without saying. And that's about it. You know, that's all I remember of the early days until we started recording. And then and then everything I thought was uh, uh, was reinforced and and supported by watching him the way he worked. He was very, very fast, but he had to be because we had no budget. but I like that too, you know, when we talked about it in a way, we talked about how, you know, sometimes you can overthink stuff so much and you can spend hours and hours, especially with the technology as it exists, where you can do, you know, multiple, a hundred you know, different takes of one little guitar lick and stuff. And then you end in that editing hell because of the ability to, to manipulate and 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 edit and re-edit and and tweak and do this and that and and sometimes you know especially like in the old days but you didn't have time you had to get it right uh, you rehearsed a bit more beforehand but then you had to get in there and get it right you just did not have weeks or months unless you were the stones and you went to jamaica and spent five million dollars on you know on an album uh, but if you have to get it done uh, with a, a, a reasonable budget, you've got to make the you got to do the editing in your head before you uh, actually you even walk in the studio. Mm-hmm. To some degree, you know, I'm not saying it's you know, hundred percent. You always, you know, have a have some you know edit a little editing or a little, you know, well let's try this or try that, but. And, and what that does, and I had, again, when I worked in England, they, had, they did not have the budgets that we do over here at the BBC or any of the English television stations. I had to make those edits in my mind because uh, this is a side note. I directed multiple camera, four camera sitcoms live. Yeah. I, I edited them. You know, I was calling the shots in the booth like the old days. And so I had to make all those decisions up front. And, and Adam, um, I remember he really knew what he wanted before he even went in. There wasn't any sitting around hemming and hawing and, well, let's try this and try that and have, have some musicians come in and, you know, well, let's try, you know, we'll spend an hour or two hours working on a snare sound. You know, obviously we did not have, the resources of the time to do that. Well, I remember that about all the sessions. They just went, like I say, they went uh, just smoothly. And that's the way I like to work, get in, do the work. But I didn't feel rushed. I never felt like, uh, come on, we got to, you know, we got 20 minutes left uh, or anything like that. If there was some time needed to, to try a couple of other things, to try some different stuff. You know, he he was always uh, uh, agreeable, but for the most part, like I say, he went in prepared, and I really, really respected that, and I respect that from people who who come in prepared, because in that way, you can actually improv. It's easier to improvise. Yeah. Because if you have a plan, then you can still improvise, but if it doesn't work out, you've got your plan. And so you're not stumbling around in the dark. Oh, crap. 
Now what are we going to do? Because we don't, we didn't have a plan and the improv spontaneous, you know, thing didn't work. And now we're screwed. <laughs> well, there was that time that Adam came to your house to write with you. Do you remember that? Yeah, of course. We wrote um, the last song in the album. It was just a, I'd come up with, well, I, I, you know, it's a famous saying, you know, you hear people say it all the time. I was there, you know, I was, I was there in the 60s and I'm told I had a good time. <laughs> right. So I would use that line, you know, occasionally. And I don't remember if it was he or I said, well, that'd make a cool song. And I just started, I was there and I'm told I had a good time. And he said, let's write that. And, you know, pretty simple song. And I played drums on it. We did it in one or two takes. We even referenced, why don't we do it in the road? Which, which was written uh, in that same, same way. He's by far the, well, the only person that I know. I, you know, obviously there's been some other names that have succumbed to that terrible virus, but Adam is by far the person that I was the closest to. And I'm still reeling from it. I, I, I think of him and I, picture him and I'm just I just you know god what a what a tragedy you know that's about it you know I I I, I miss him I'm, I'm still like I say still uh, reeling from it a little bit I like you I just I think of him and I think oh man I, you know got to give Adam a call god Sam Hollander, well-known songwriter and producer, worked with a bunch of bands that are extremely successful. Besides Adam, how did he and Adam start their relationship? You'll hear that. You'll hear Sam tell you himself, but you've got these two guys who are just powerhouse songwriters. Sam's written for people like Fits in the Tantrums, Panic at the Disco, Weezer, Train, even One Direction, Gym Class Heroes. He's been Rolling Stone's Hot List Producer of the Year. And you get these two guys who are kind of like super mellow and super non-egotistical about this thing. And they're kind of like, they connect immediately because they are sort of envious of the other's career, as you'll hear. And Sam's just a great guy. He's one another example of Adam bringing people together. One time, Adam and I went for barbecue in Burbank, and he's like, hey, my friend Sam's going to join us. I'm like, oh, great. And come to find out it's Sam Hollander. I'm like, wow. That's just kind of thing that Adam would do to you. He'd kind of blindside you with, you know, someone really cool. I let Sam tell the story himself. Yeah, you know, I, I first met Adam, I was in uh, Nantucket. My, my daughter was about 10 months old, and it was my first time ever in Nantucket with my wife, I believe, maybe my second time. There's a place called the Juice Bar, which, uh, you know, is, is centrally located downtown. And 
you know, I, I've always sort of fanboyed other songwriters who, you know, I looked up to because, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I still exist in that, you know, that record collecting nerddom of like, you know, of, of like, you know, these are baseball cards to me. And I knew who Adam was. I thought, man, Adam Schlesinger's on Nantucket. This is crazy. And I walked up to him and he, he had stepped away from his wife and his kid. And I, I walked up, I said, Hey man, like, you know, I'm a songwriter. We've many friends in common. I'm in New York, blah, blah. And we kicked it. And, uh, I, I remember like getting a rush. I thought, Oh man, that's very cool. What a, what a sweet guy. Adam Schlesinger, man. Got back to New York and I was mastering a record at a Sterling sound. I was with Steve Yegowell and Steve at A&R, the Fonzo Lane stuff. And Adam was, I guess, leaving. And I guess we met in the Chelsea market that day as well. And I don't know how it happens, but something gives. And we, he went from like uh, a casual acquaintance to, you know, one of the best friends I've ever had in that period. It began with uh, just a lot of nights of just meeting up for uh, cocktails and just, you know, a couple cynical, like, songwriting New York Jews, like, just kicking it about our lives. And just, like, it was interesting because... I was absolutely in awe of him because he was, at that point, he had been Oscar-nominated, he'd been Grammy-nominated, possibly Emmy-nominated, I think, and certainly the Tony was was close. I think it was probably a year out, but he was already developing Broadway. You know, and I was a pop songwriter who, you know, had written some hits, and what was interesting about it was we were in two different worlds, and they were they were very different. And we were both absolutely fascinated by each other's existence. And I know, at least on my end, I just wanted to be him, you know? I love the idea of just being able to jump from, uh, you know, medium to medium and whatever he felt creatively. And I thought, God, that is so... It was so fabulous to live that lifestyle. And uh, he was always fascinated by the fact that I would get in a room six days a week to write with bands because he came up in this purest era of bands writing their own stuff as it was, you know. He was always fascinated by that dynamic and, you know, the roles I had to play. And he would just grill me over and over again. He said, all right, so you're doing lyric, you're doing melody. How much therapy? Yes, I'm doing a lot of therapy, you know. (laughs) The one thing music's afforded me is... um, incredible friendships that, you know, the bulk of my closest friends are in this industry because this is, it's a, it's a commonality and we, we have the same reference points or whatever, but Adam was just this other spectacular being because I never really met anybody like him. He was sort of like Dorothy Parker holding down the power pop, like Algonquin, you know what I mean? Like he just, you know, you'd show up on any given night and you get this text at like five in the afternoon and it's like, meet here seven o'clock and you show up and First of all, you're in town. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Give me a heads up. <laughs> yeah, no, no heads up ever. If I was in New York or, or, or wherever he was roaming, there would be a random text and he would just hit me up and say, look, you know, how do we, uh, he said, meet me at this time. I show up and there's always this random assortment of creative freaks. And That's how we met. I, yeah, and exactly. It's like, it's just, you, they become an extended family because you start to realize, oh my God, we all have a shared sensibility and a take on stuff. And there's one night in particular that stands out with Adam. My parents got very sick and died back to back. My father was, um, my mom passed and then my dad was sick. And it was a terrible stretch. And I'm flying back and forth between New York and LA and my family's out here. And then I'm going back to help take care of my parents every month. So I was going back every, every fourth week I was going for a week and I would just stay on the Upper West Side. Uh, Adam knew I was going through hard times and he always would just hit me up the second I landed, like, do what you need to do today. And then when your dad goes to sleep, 
get downtown and have a drink with me, you know? Right. And on um, one night, I was having a really rough stretch. It was, it was, it was nearing the end for my father and I was just gutted and I'm lo- locked in this little hotel room. And Adam said, I am sitting next to Peter Wolf from Jay Giles band. And you're going to meet us for drinks right now. So I hop downtown and I meet up with Adam and, and Peter Wolf. And we have this hang that's surreal because the, the music, we went to Sid Gold's and the bar just opened and it's very loud at the time. So, you know, there's people doing shrill karaoke in the front and in the back, you know, there's like disco music blaring by the bar and, you know, and Peter Wolf is talking and neither Adam or I can understand a word he's saying. Now, looking back on it, one of us had too many cocktails and I don't know if it was Peter, me or Adam or just the collective, you know, but I just didn't understand what he was saying. And he kept, you know, at one point, Adam said, let's just get Peter Wolf to sing centerfold karaoke. Now let's just get it over with. Right. So we said, Peter Wolf, you want to sing some karaoke with us? So we go behind the curtain. Cause if you know, Sid Gold's there's the front bar and then yeah. you walk in Manhattan and you walk through this curtain and you go back and there's, there's the, there's the stage. And so, we, we put Peter Wolf's name in the hat. They call him immediately. He gets up and they said, this is Peter. He's going to sing Centerfold. And of course, no one has any idea who Peter Wolf is in this room. It's, they, the collective age had to be 25, you know? Right. And he gets up and sings Centerfold. And I'm watching all these kids say, wow, this guy does it pretty good. This guy's got a good version. Yeah, this guy can sing that song. That's cool, you know? And we're just going crazy. No embellishment. Five minutes later, we're, like, we're giving Peter Wolf high fives. Man, you killed it. The curtains part, and Bill Murray walks through. What? And Bill Murray enters, and he has two girls, uh, a girl on each arm, and two glasses of water, and some sort of alcoholic concoction. And he's walking towards us. And I feel like I'm tripping my face off, you know? <laughs> and Bill Murray gets up there. And one by one, we have one of these nights that was so incredibly magical that we spent the next three days just texting back our favorite details back and forth. And Adam said to me, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could replicate it in LA? So my friends, uh, Erica and Francoise owned, uh, Francoise, uh, her family owned uh, La Poubelle. So mm-hmm. we connected over there and that brought Sid Gold to LA. And then we moved it to where my studio is at Gold Diggers now and throwing these parties. And, and you know, it just, it, it, what I, I was selfish, but I always thought, well, you know what? It guarantees me a hang with Adam every single month because I, I know my friend's going to be there. I know like our whole collective group of friends is going to be there and we're going to have these nights. And emotionally, man, I've been having a really hard time with it. I think back, like, you know, somebody sent me all the Christmas clips of all of us just on stage singing Christmas songs together and my arms around Adam. And you just can't believe that this part of the movie ends now. It's just, it's horrific. And I just, I don't know. I might have met 20 people through Adam who are in my life to some extent. How Mm -hmm. cool is that? You know? that's amazing. It's like, that just, that doesn't happen with other people. There's people that I love and then I'll meet their friends and they go, Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Adam Adam just connected like-minded people who really, um, with no judgments and everybody, it was an equal playing field for everybody. A songwriter I know in Toronto um, named Steffi, you know, she wrote a great piece about it, about how, he was just so supportive of her and she was just like an up and coming kid. Mm -hmm. And he did that thing, mentor, encourage. And I believe in all the same, you know, I I just have the same ideology and, you know, it's just such a basic notion, but Adam was that giving with everybody. What's amazing about the outpouring of love for him is he never would have noticed it. He never would have understood it because 
he was such an under the radar cat, you know, it was fascinating. You'd walk into a space and everyone knew him. And yet there was never, it was never rooted in ego. It was just rooted completely in human interaction and what brought him joy. You know, he would be stunned that he was front page news. Oh my gosh. He would never believe it. I mean, it's the most incredible thing ever. And the irony is not lost on me that this guy was born on Halloween and died on New- on April Fool's. Yeah. You know, he made a mark, man. And I could never see this guy exiting the building. I mean, it's just, you can't, he had so much life and fire. And I said something in that piece in Variety about Adam saying, never take spec work. He used to grill me on that, right? And at one point, you know, our kids, you know, about five, six, six years ago, our kids were still of Disney age. And we both got the call to write songs for Disney's descendants from our friend Steve Vincent. We both decided to go for different cues. And it was the first time we'd ever written on the same thing in our lives. You know, we collaborated before, but we'd never gone against each other on something. So we decided we did different cues, went after different stuff. He called me up and he said, you got advanced, right? I said, no, I just wrote, you know, he said, what? (laughs) He said, you do not take spec work. You have had way too many hits to take spec work. You never take spec work. And he's just killing me, right? I did this and I got paid for it and blah, 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 blah. So we, I write the song with my friends, Josh and Charity and Grant and uh, Adam writes his song and he got advanced. But yeah, that, that would always come up. He would always ask me, you're not doing anything for free, are you? Don't do anything for free. Don't do anything for free. No spec, no spec. I might have gone deep down the rabbit hole for the last week and a half, just sitting here crying and just, you know, reflecting. But, you know, I've seen so many parodies of the 80s in my lifetime, as I know you have as well. I mean, you you host the greatest podcast on the 80s out there. You know, he nailed my upbringing. I felt like he hit the 80s right on the nose. And it was such a, I don't know. He was so good at not just doing like, I'm going to do an 80s song. There was a specificity to it, if I'm saying that right. It was, I'm not going to do just like an 80s song. I'm going to do a song that like kind of is a a parody or an homage to Huey Lewis, hip to be square specifically. And it was like, look, and I got to tell you something like, you know, fever high, fever high signed by the great A&R John Hughes. Um, what I would say to you about Fever High is Fever High is awesome, like really worth the dig because it's a pastiche in the greatest way ever. It is not ironic. It is just a love letter to, you know, a certain kind of Bananarama record that I, as a kid, meant everything to me. When I saw Fever High Live, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I thought, you know, he just gets it. He just gets it. He, the, the, he wore his heart on his Pro Tools. When Adam would dial into sort of nostalgic stuff, I loved it. And, you know, that's the great thing is like his writing, so much of it was an homage. Way Back Into Love is a, might as well be Bacharach, right? And then you go from something like that to the the other end of Adam that I adore is really like the jugular radio power pop of the Click 5 single, Just a Girl. And honestly, of the Tinted Windows single, which kind of a girl which I felt like it was slept on. I thought that was an incredible power pop record. So I don't know. I just, uh, you know, I've debated this with, with a very close friend. I, I think that's a deep cut. People will discover it someday. That's a great cut. What I love is when he approached something and we would talk about this all the time, his outlook was let's like, and I, I, and, and by the way, 
I do the same thing is let's go deep into our musical encyclopedia and pull from these varied, you know, references and really let's combine things. So it just, I don't know. It's just, let's keep it uh, by, um, by embracing the past. We sort of push the narrative forward and he always did, you know, if fever high had just been, you know, Oh, it's a banana rama ripoff. We wouldn't have been interested. It was the fact that there was all sorts of layers to it. It was, there were, you know, there was the obvious banana rama thing, but there was also like scritty politty type programming happening underneath it. But most importantly, all that melody that was happening and the harmony of the yeah. girl. No one could step to him melodically. He was just doing things. He, he had a magical ear melodically. There's moments when you just go down an Adam playlist and go through it. There are always just these signature sort of lifts mm. and just these subtle melodic dives. It's like a, a warm blanket over your soul when he hits it. It's just, I don't know, man. He's a badass, badass writer, man. Badass I'm gonna, writer. I'm out for you, if you, if you're not familiar with it, to, to listen to it, uh, for fever high spy i that was okay. the that was the huge hit that never was okay i'll go deep on it i'll go deep on it i i have to tell you what i what i loved about adam is adam always felt like a throwback of another era as a human being I, sometimes i felt like he was shuttled onto the earth at the wrong moment i've said to a few people you know adam's career reminded me a little bit of joe raposo right Joe Raposo was just so this musical, brilliant writer who wrote kid stuff, but also could write subversive stuff. He was amazing. You know, with Adam, I just felt like he might have come from, I felt like, you know, he might have been shot down here at an era when he, uh, it's hard to articulate it. He just, there was something about him and the way he carried himself that I felt like he might have been one of my dad's friends. (laughs) You know, he was just so, there's something sort of, so, I don't know, he just, he felt like New York 1975, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's how he approached life. We'd have dinner in the East Village, and he would drive across from Chelsea, he would drive over to dinner in the East Village. Who doesn't walk to... Yeah, who doesn't... Yeah, but who doesn't walk to the East Village the 15 blocks, you know? But he's going to drive that car, you know, and... There were always these incredible moments like that. There's a sweetness. And when I say the Raposo thing, it's interesting because, you know, Raposo writes that Sesame Street stuff and he writes Sing, you know, but then he also did Broadway stuff and he wrote animated stuff. And he was just, I felt like he was one of these guys where he just, it was the sweetness melodically. And that with Adam, it's the same thing where you just, nobody current wrote that way, you know, and I mean, Mike Viola. Mike, 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 and Adam. It's interesting that that they were brothers because Mike also has that ear. He's those are really the only two guys I've worked with who have that specific thing. And it's easy to label a power pop. I think that's the most convenient thing for me. But it's just it's just traditionalists. They're brilliant traditionalists, and I don't know. I'm enamored with it. I think they're both just incredible writers and great guys. I don't know who's going to take that mantle. Like I think he set a bar, and I don't know things progress and time goes on and there'll be a, there are many incredible writers now, but Adam was such a specific beast. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if uh, anybody could ever, you know, accomplish the same highs that he hit. I mean, I mean, dude, he did the Howard Stern theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, come on. I mean, who 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 else but Adam Schlesinger could have like indie cred cool going on with Ivy and Fountains and he's doing the Howard Stern and TV Funhouse stuff, you know, <laughs> simultaneously. I don't know. There was always a hustle. There was always some strange commercial or something, you know. And, he'd, be up at, he'd be out till four and then be up at seven writing. Yeah. And doing yeah. stuff and yeah. uh, he lived you know yeah. he lived he really lived and that's one thing that i hope is never lost on this is that this guy lived you know for 52 years this mm-hmm. guy lived i mean the energy was incredible he was you know bouncing around this country back and forth bouncing to islands wherever it took him wherever the muse took him he was there and he was always creating and hustling and just coming up with the next thing. And, and look what he's left us. All, all these friendships, all these memories. I mean, you know, uh, obviously we would still want him here, but we're going to never forget him. And, and it's impossible. I really can't recall anybody like him. He was in my life. I've never met anybody like him. I've never met, you know, I've met connectors before. I know other connectors. And that's an incredible trait. And to be a connector, you know, there are two types of connectors in life, as you know. There are connectors who are takers, and there are connectors who are out there to just pay it forward and connect like-minded people with the idea that let's have more fun. He was that guy. And, you know, that's such like a rare quality. He didn't, He never wanted anything. He would introduce me to people where, you know, work could come from it. He never once would ever ask. It wasn't about that. It was about... This is a crew, you know, these are people I believe in creatively for various reasons, and I want to see them win. The last band that Adam had a hand in creating and and producing and working in and with was Fever High, and we spoke with both Rennie Lane and Anna Nordine about this, but we have Rennie first. Fever High was interesting because, as you heard Sam mention, it was a particular favorite of his, and not a lot of people are aware of Fever High right. because it was really starting from the ground up. It was a grassroots thing. I kind of got to listen to them and hear them via Adam, and I said, hey, we should do something with them, and, and I helped get them going on Sire Records, and we re-released the EP All Work. And what is great about Fever High is it definitely takes from all the different 80s influences that are very, very obvious on the surface, Bananarama, Scritti Politti, things like that. But it infuses it with this real wit that only Adam and, and Rennie and Anna could bring to it. And it goes a little deeper than those surface influences, as you'll hear. And also Rennie and Anna and Adam were just really great friends. And you'll hear first from Rennie.
had sort of been running in similar circles as Adam for a while. I was friends with James Zeha. I'd heard of Stratosphere and, um, and of Adam and all the things that he was doing. And I also um, met this guy, Mike Deneen, up in Boston. He ran a studio called Q-Zone. Q-Zone, is that what it was? I think Something so. Like yeah. And uh, Adam had recorded some Fountains of Wayne albums there. I was actually recording an album with Howie Day. I'd co-written with him on a couple songs and we were recording there. And, you know, I did my musician due diligence thing where I, at the end of the session, I said to Mike, hey, like, that was really fun. By the way, you know, I live in New York. So anytime there's something cool going on up in Boston, you need to hire someone, you know, hit me up. I'm, I'm around. And Usually you do that and you never hear back from anyone. Mm -hmm. But in the case of Mike, like a month later, he texted me and said, oh, you, uh, you should go meet my friend Adam. He's doing this band and they're looking for another member. And he sent me the stuff and I was like, it was, it was fever hot. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like, you know, just getting, I get sent demos and, and, and band offer sort of things all the time and it's crap, but this really caught my eye and I went and met with Adam and Anna and had our infamous uh, round of spicy margaritas and just hit it off. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I met Adam, but it was funny because I felt like even with Anna as well, that we had already known each other a long time. There was kind of a weird spiritual connection. Like we were flabbergasted how we didn't meet before because we had so many friends in New York in common. I don't know. It was just kind of a magical, magical moment. You know, who's the guy who wrote like the tipping point and stuff? Like they need to write a book about Adam. <laughs> <laughs> he is the X factor. Cure I mean, I don't even think it was something he consciously did. I think he just had this infectious, positive type of energy that naturally drew interesting talented people to him and you know another thing I will say is he's one of the very few people I've met in the music industry who I've like been in a band with who didn't really like guilt trip me for having other interests and other bands that I was doing he was so positive and encouraging to whatever it was I was working on at all times he we were always swapping like inspirations of different bands and making jokes. He was had encyclopedic knowledge of all music, and yeah, you know, he was just very encouraging. Um, he was never threatened by, you know, people branching off and doing their own thing. And I think that reflects in the type of people that congregated around him. And I think he, of all people, understood the need to go do other things because he was so busy. Yeah, I mean, he had a crazy sense of humor. I mean, I think the to me, the funniest things with Adam were kind of these situational things. Like, I can't think of anything specific right now, but there was a lot of times, you know, where like Adam being kind of like the madman Wizard of Oz behind the scenes for Fever High and then me and Anna being like kind of like on camera, like facing the crowd and stuff. And so many times like we'd be on stage or at a photo shoot or something. And I just like look back at Adam to see like what the hell he was doing. And he just always looked like he was having the best time, but also like a little bit lost maybe. <laughs> like, trying to, but in a, not in a bad way, like in a way where it's just like, he's just so present and enjoying himself, you know? 
So when we did the Book of Love tour, mm-hmm. we did a warm-up gig in Austin before we meet up with Book of Love in San Francisco or Houston, Dallas. I don't know. It's rock and roll. But <laughs> he, uh, we were so excited because this was our first little mini tour. And obviously the big question is who's going to get hit on first. With two hot girls in the band, you're like, oh, man, like, okay, it's, it's probably going to be Anna, you know. But then as we're loading out, you know, and of course there's like a couple diehard Adam fans in the crowd. And actually Adam is the one at the end of the day who has to beat the fans off of him. This woman was like trying so hard to get him to come back to her hotel. And he literally had to be like, no, no, get away from me. <laughs> Rock and roll. He's so, he was so polite, you know, he's like, he's like, I don't think that's, I don't really know. Like, this, thank you very much. I'm very flattered, but. I don't know. It was hilarious. Me and Anna were sitting in the front of the minivan just laughing our asses off. I know he he would hate me for saying this, but I really loved Ivy. That's kind of like, I mean, I've I've heard of him first through Fountains of Wayne. uh, But then once we started working together, I kind of like did the deep dive that you do when you initially start collaborating with someone to see what they're about. And I just really got into all the ivy records even the really early stuff i was just playing the other day i hate december great song just love that song love the lyrics all of his songs were so like archetypically simple like on a platonic level basically that i really really respect and i know it's really it's hard to do that and i you know i really respect the the song craft, especially lyrically speaking, to do those sort of things. Every time we did another Fever High song, I was just like shocked by how he was still able to whip something so unique and simple out of thin air and just continuously doing that over and over again. It was really incredible experience to witness that. And another great Adam memory I have is um, my buddy Eric, when he found out I was working with Adam, he called me up and he's like, Brenny, like, I have a really big favor to ask you. And I'm like, oh, what is it, Eric? And he's like, come over to my house when you come to L.A. And I'll tell you. And I was just thinking, like, what the, what the hell is it that he wants me to do? You know, so I, I get to his house and he, we basically get down to business and he pulls out a, a copy of a single a vinyl single of that thing you do. <laughs> and it's like this really, really weird, like promotional copy of it. And he says, can you take this to Adam and, and get him to sign it? And I'm like, that's, you know, that's what you want me to do. Like, of course, like, I'm sure he'll love it, you know? So I, I took it to dinner that night and brought it to Adam and I showed him the copy of this thing and he just burst out laughing like this is really interesting like where did this come from like how did he find this thing you know no ego at all just of course he signed it he was like well where, where's your friend like tell him to come to the show you know I, I could have signed it for him in person you know but um that was like such a such a funny moment so many people reached out to me um when I started working with him and also when he passed just to you know, tell me what an impact that he had had upon their lives. And, you know, I've, it's always blew my mind, like how he touched so many people's lives with his music. He was never an egomaniac or whatever, like got annoyed with fans or anything. He was always so gracious and just like a truly genuine person. I mean, I don't know. It's very, very rare to 
find that kind of attitude in a rock star, so to say. Whenever I think of like how to interact with people or how to behave, mm. I always think of Adam because he just was so positive and genuine. For sure. I cannot let this go by without talking about Fever High and obviously how much I loved it and love it and how I think it's the underrated gem in Adam's discography and how people should go back and really discover the music and, and that record and the singles. What's unfortunate is that those a lot of those songs, like this is something that Adam would always say is that we, you know, we put out music and when you're starting out as a band and you're promoting things yourself, you know, it takes a while for people to kind of catch on to what you're doing, you know, and even even if you have like a big label come in and re-release it, it's still it's all a process. Yeah, I am really excited to see how people react to the songs as they go on and have a life of their own. Because that's that's another thing Adam would always talk about. He would say, you know, just because a band breaks up or or stops putting out music, it doesn't mean it's over. You know, that music is out there and it lives on forever and it has a life of its own. And I think that was something he really understood about bands. And, you know, it was very like kind of sage like wisdom, but coming from like a funny, not too serious attitude, you know? We're going to talk with Anna Nordine now, again, about Fever High and her relationship with Adam. Anna and Adam were friends for years before even forming Fever High. And as you'll hear Anna tell the story, it was, again, another classic Adam moment where they're working on demos for something else. And, and Adam just kind of has a, this Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland. Hey, let's start a band with this. And, <laughs> and it's just the kind of thing he would do. And again, it just affects all of us so deeply, this loss. And we just try to remember some of the happy times. And Anna's got a lot of great stories. So uh, when did you first meet Adam? Do you remember? I don't specifically remember like the exact time. It was years and years ago. Uh, had to be like 10 years ago or something. Uh, but I definitely met him at like 7B or the cabin down below or black and white or one of those East Village rock and roll. He was friends with my friend Jesse. I think that's how I met him. So I was an actress, indie actress, and I was like... Just started writing uh, music and performing music on my own, solo. And so, but he would have me come into his studio to record voiceovers for, you know, commercials he was working on or, or backup vocals for songs he was working on. One day he had me come in and uh, he was like, why don't you just try singing uh, vocals on this one song that I wrote, which is, that's so typical. Mm. Um and I sang it and it, I sang on it and it worked and, and it, we had a, so much fun um, that he, we were like, let's make a band that's kind of like 
Tom Tom clubby new shoes. I can't wait kind of style. So that kind of kicked off fever high. And that was another point. I had a lot of friends tell me about after reading all these like lovely remembrances of Adams, like writ, you know, written up articles and stuff. A lot of friends are calling me and they're like, I had no idea like how accomplished he was. You would never guess just by hanging out with him. One friend said humble. Um, but, um, she kind of was like, if you think, yeah, he, you know, uh, he, he really kind of, uh, I always refer to him as an extroverted introvert, you know, he wasn't of things, but he, he would jump in with like, you know, a really devastating comment or a witty rejoinder. Oh yeah. He would never let you get too emo or anything. Like he would definitely pull you right out of that, which always annoyed me in some way, but I also loved it. (laughs) Well, what I was saying about the whole humble is like he we would go on tour and he would play these like small little venues with us. Like he didn't care. Like we, you know, we would play shows to like five people and he would just like he just loved he just wanted to have fun with the band, you know, and like have these adventures and we would stay at like shitty hotels outside of Austin or something and like it, he just wanted to have fun and be in this band and have this experience and I just thought thought that was pretty cool. But yes, Adam always said I always got a kick out of this when Adam, when people would ask Adam how we met, Adam would always say, oh, we met down in the the New York downtown rock and roll scene. We became friends uh, over our mutual love for drug use, (laughs) (laughs) which is hilarious because Adam and I were like the only ones that never did drugs in that whole scene, you know, like you'd find yourself in a Coke room and you'd just be like standing in the (laughs) Also, there's a funny other memory I have. We went up to his place in Hyde Park, the fa- the band Fever High and his girlfriend, Alexis. So it was me, Rennie, and Alexis and Adam. And we were going to shoot a couple music videos guerrilla style, just like on our iPhones. <laughs> and like I was going to edit them. And so there was this like retro roller rink. And we were like, we've got to shoot in there. So we we're like, okay, we're going to go tonight. So we like got all dressed up and... We went down to this roller rink. So um, Stephen Gold said something about how Adam had a aversion to anything that makes you go wee, <laughs> which is which is so true because Adam thought that he would get on some roller skates and he was going to film it and he was going to get on these roller skates and like follow Rennie and me around the roller rink. Only. Me, Alexis, and Running can truly know how hilarious this was because just to see his body like shaking on these skates and like <laughs> panting and like trying. Rennie and I just ended up having to like pass the camera back and forth with each other. And like, but I saw the footage. Um, I was going through old footage trying to find videos of Adam and pictures of Adam, and I and I came across him on the skates holding the like camera and like it first starts out really well when he's standing still but then he's trying to follow us you could just hear him (laughs) panting and then you and then like it then it shoots to the ground because he's like just trying to get his bearings he's just shooting his hand so you can see his hand like like flailing around and then it like goes to grab onto this handle so all in the video all you can see is just his hand like desperately trying to find like a handle to like grab onto and then he he finally gets it but it it, like makes me cry laugh every time I see it it's the funniest video I have the vision of Adam like with his knees totally locked like he wouldn't bend them and he was just like trying to skate (laughs) 
Oh, I, there was another one. We don't, we talk about um, Adams, you know, he wrote that thing you do. He wrote Stacy's mom, wrote a lot of good songs for Fountains Wayne, Fever High, wrote so many songs for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Sarah Silverman's new play coming out. But does anybody talk about that he wrote the Purina Party Poppers commercial song? Oh, yeah. And what was the, uh, uh, that's the, with the, the rap with the dog, right? Uh, the hip or like the hip hop uh, bacon. Let me just play you a little snippet from it. All day I get bacon, not just when I awaken. Think I don't get bacon, you must be mistaken. All you dogs be hating, females tails be shaking. Tell my owner that I want it, now ain't in a waiting. Them up trees so weak, those other snacks are so whack. All day I get bacon, y'all just bake for table scraps. And I ain't breaking no sweat. We would get in Adam's car and roll down all the windows and ride around New York City blasting this song. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite, most proud moments. Of course, it of course it had like a better edit, but we, they had to edit some of the explicit language out um, <laughs> for the commercial. After we would have a band session or record something at his place or or just anywhere, like it usually ended with like a, a meal. So like his and his daughters would sometimes be there and they would come in. And so Rennie kind of coined it as um, dad meals. Mm-hmm. So we would be like dad meals. His like one of his go to's was spaghetti carbonara. And he would just like cook up this big batch of spaghetti carbonara and get the wine. We go sit at this big round table with him and his daughters. And it was like, it was like his, his two daughters and then his like two band daughters <laughs> all sitting around the table chatting about, you know, like an episode of um, Riverdale or something. Right. That's a very cherished moment of mine. I also wanted to talk about how, like if, if you had to stay at his house or something, or if you had shared an Airbnb, like, Adam was always the first to wake up in the morning, go to the grocery store, get so many breakfast ingredients and come back and start cooking it. And so you'd always wake up to like the smell of bacon or and eggs and coffee and you'd walk in, he'd be like making you breakfast. He just loved bringing people together to eat and, and to have a good time and have fun. There's always just a comfort around him. So we'd been through a lot with our band, but we would get into these fights over something trivial, like like a music video edit or something. And we would both kind of be stubborn and then just like not budge. I guess I would kind of co- like he was he would get pretty stubborn and then I would kind of copy it. And then I'd be like, well, no, you know. And so at the end of it, he would always be like, I still love you, though. And I would be like, I love you, too. So it was just a special security in, in my friendship with him and and. um sweetness and ugh. my last phone call with Adam was just a few days before he got sick and now it'll be cherished I'll cherish it forever so I'm so grateful for my co-worker because my co-worker was just, we were just working and she was like what's this tune oh yeah that's Crosby Stills and Nash 
or Steely Dan or something. And I was like, well, what is it? So then we're like, we went on like this whole search to find that tune. And I went through all the Crosby, Stills and Nash and it wasn't like, I couldn't find it. I went through all the Steely Dan, I couldn't find it. I knew it was one of those seventies rocks bands. I like, couldn't figure it out. And then finally I was like, I'm going to use my lifeline. <laughs> so I called Adam and I was like, Adam, what is this? Do, 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 do. And he's like, oh, that's Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, spelled S-U-I-T-E. Also, Frank Zappa did, did a cover of it. And he, like, used this line instead of this line and, like, went on this big information tangent about this one song. And the do-do-do-do-do is at the end of this song. That's probably why you didn't find it, because blah, blah, blah. It's only, like, a, like the last few bars. So anyways, I just wanted to note how Adam's brain was like an encyclopedia. So if you had, if you had any kind of music question, he would know what to tell you. He was a definite phone a friend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so grateful to have been that close. He he wasn't just a bandmate to me. He was like honestly one of my best friends. <laughs> and so I'm just so grateful to have been that close to him and to have worked with him, to have made music with him. I just I'm, I'm super sad, super bummed. After two episodes talking with Adam's friends and co-workers, we have a pretty good idea of what kind of a guy he was. Incredibly creative. The guy, his creative output was absolutely phenomenal. The amount of great work that he released. But you hear these people talk about what a great heart he had and how collaborative he was and how positive he was and how he pushed friends to create great art. And just what a wonderful person. I, I feel like I know him, even though I never met him. I wish I had, because I think that some of that would have rubbed off on me and made me a better person too. I think anybody who met him was a better person for it. He changed my life. And I don't say that lightly. Uh, and he was such, again, it keeps coming back to this a theme of him being a connector and bringing very like-minded people together and, and enjoying watching people connect through him. And it's just so sad that we can't all get together right now and raise a few glasses to him. This was the best I could come up with to have everybody just share their stories, share their pain, share their feeling of loss, but also just remember the man for the beautiful human being he was. I, I know it's helped me. I hope it helps anyone else that is just hurting in their heart with this. And, you know, we're, we're never going to forget him. And I, I miss the guy so much. I would encourage all of you out there listening, if you maybe have just dipped your toe in Adam's music, you know, Stacy's mom, or you're familiar that he, you know, wrote that thing you do for that thing you do, investigate his music. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. There are songs on Fountains of Wayne's albums that will blow your mind. They're so good. Listen to Ivy. Check out Fever High. There is so much good music to discover that Adam made, and it's, it's here for us. And I encourage you all to go investigate it. I think we can leave everyone uh, with a song that Adam wrote alongside Sam and Steve, Stephen Gold, 
for uh, potential use in the Muppets movie with Jason Siegel. It didn't get picked, unfortunately, but it was a demo he did that's called Something Happened. And the day I heard of Adam's passing, I had some music on and I, I'm not making this up. It sounds like a BS story. I swear to God, it is not. This song came up on shuffle and it just completely destroyed me. And now I can't think about Adam without thinking about this song. And it's a shame it's not out there. So we're doing our part. Here it is. It's an unreleased demo called Something Happened. very much for tuning in don't forget to listen and subscribe on itunes so you don't miss the next rhino podcast producer for rhino entertainment john hughes produced for rhino entertainment by rich mayhem promotions all rights reserved Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.